People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM, and we've got a guest in the studio, and not just any guest. We've got Mandy Weiner in the guest the week of the release of her book, Ministry of Crime, An Underworld Explored. It's published by Macmillan. It's quite a tome of a book, and it's also a very urgent book. Uh, joins a growing genre, a growing genre of South African nonfiction. Jacques Poe's The President's Keeper, um, Mandy's previous book, Killing Kibble, uh, Linus Breitenbach's book, uh, uh, Johann von Lochrenburn's book, Rogue. It's a growing genre of urgent research and urgent stories that have to be told, people have to read. We're coming up to an election cycle next year. We've got to know what the current government and what current policy is so that we can make our informed decisions and then decide on how we're going to live in a country that currently Mandy calls is governed by the Ministry of Crime. Welcome, Mandy. This is uh, it's a great privilege for us to have you in the studio. Thank you very much. It's always good to be here. I'm not going to give you a biography. I'm going to let you do that. Can you introduce yourself in your own words and on your own terms? Um, yeah, so I'm a journalist. I'm an author. Uh, I've been on radio for, for a while as a hard news reporter. Um, and uh, I've written, this is my fourth book. Uh, the first one, as you mentioned, was Killing Kebble. Uh, and then I wrote a, another book with uh, Vusi Piccoli, who was the, the head of the NPA. And then I, I did a book with my colleague Barry Bateman on Oscar Pistorius and, and Reva Stenkamp. And this is the the fourth one um, so that's my uh, summarized professional CV and then I'm uh, I'm a mom I'm a wife uh, you know all of that as well in many ways Ministry of Crime continues the narrative arc that you charted in Killing Kibble can you lay the pre-Ministry of Crime underworld that you covered in your first book so that this one follows seamlessly after. So I suppose that in many ways this is the sequel to, to Killing Kebble uh, and, th- and that's how a lot of people are looking at it and it kind of uh, starts um, at the time where, where Killing Kebble left off. So in, in, the, f- in, in the first book in, in Kebble um, it really uh, dives quite deep into the Kebble murder and the Jackie Salibi corruption trial uh, with interviews with, uh, with the shooters Mikey Schultz and uh, uh, Nigel McGurk and Cuppy Smith. Um, and then this picks up uh, shortly after that when Radovan Kreitscher arrives in the country in 2007 on an Interpol red notice uh, with a pseudonym of Jules Igbert Savi and wearing a, a disguise. And he arrived at a time when Salibi was on trial for corruption, where Glenn Agliotti had um, confessed on the witness stand uh, to uh, corrupting the National Police Commissioner, and he never was sent to prison for that. And then you had the the self-confessed shooters of Kebble who stood up in open court uh, and told the world how they had killed him and they never went to jail. So Kratia arrived in that context and he would have gone, well, this place is, is ripe for the pickings. In, in the Ministry of Crime, you continue to track criminal enterprises in all their gory detail. But now you look at the intersection between three different worlds, the criminals, the police and crime intelligence, 
and then politicians. Can you elaborate on that? So for me, the, the Ministry of Crime is really the, the nexus of those three worlds, um, of that, that political realm and, and powerful, influential politicians. Um, then the the law enforcement world where, where police officers operate in law enforcement, so from the NPA to SARS to the Hawks to, to crime intelligence. Um, and then the third world of, uh, of the criminal underworld. Um, and there's a lot of overlap of, of these three worlds and they kind of meet in the middle at, at the Ministry of Crime. So, for example, you have a lot of bad guys, uh, known criminals who are actually working for the police, um, who are state agents, who are police sources, who are paid for information. And as a result of that, they have cover. So they will never be prosecuted. They'll never be charged with anything. They'll, they'll get off because they know that they've got that cover of being a police source. And then by the same token, you've got police officers who are on the payroll of criminals. Um, so you have, you have a number of allegations of very senior police officers being corrupted and working within criminal syndicates. Um, and then you've got the, the political realm where there's been this, uh, almost premeditated, uh, attempt to eviscerate the law enforcement agencies in order to protect, you know, either criminal syndicates or, or influential politicians. Um, and all of that leaves us with what I call the Ministry of Crime. Everybody that I mentioned this book to, and I've been talking about it for the last two weeks, has had the same response. Mandy's brave, but she's absolutely crazy to venture <laughs> into criminal underworlds, to meet in cafes of Bedford View with all these dark, shady people. How do you do it and still sleep at night? Um, look, my, my viewpoint is that I like to hear the side of of the people who aren't necessarily given a platform to be interviewed often. Um, so y- you have interviews in the book with, with Radha Van Kreacher, um, with Nafiz Modak in Cape Town, with Mark Liffman, you know, who's the de facto mayor of Seapoint. Um, you know, so, so people like, like that. And a lot of these people haven't given interviews before because they don't trust the media. The media is very quick to judge them. And my view is I'd rather let the, the reader make up their own mind about what they believe uh, the version is or the, the truth is. Um, so th- th- there's no element of fear. Um, everyone who I wrote about pretty much saw the book beforehand. They're all aware of it. They are given an opportunity to, to respond to any of the allegations. Um, so for that reason, you know, there's... And there might be a little bit of an element of madness, but, um, um, you know, for me, I think it's just important to, to get the stories onto the pages. How do you get the, tr- the, the trust of these people? I think it is that, um, that fact that I, I don't necessarily judge them. So a lot of other journalists would immediately paint them as criminals and gangsters, uh, whereas I want to hear their stories. And, and the only way we'll learn more about them is if we if we draw those stories out of them. Um, you know, some people criticize me for giving gangsters a platform um, and for letting the underworld have a voice. Um, but for me, that's the only way we're going to learn about it and get any kind of insight into, into what's actually going on. And it's a big world. And if they don't have a voice, it's... Something that we're just ignoring with that bubbling underneath society. Yeah, and, and we'll just never know about it. And, and what people are often fascinated about is the fact that they live amongst us. So a lot of the incidents in the book happen in places that we frequent all the time. Um, places where, where you go that you may not even realize that um, these things might be happening. So uh, restaurants that you go to, shopping centers that you frequent, um, you know, that it's, it's all very familiar. 
and there are a lot of people involved that you might not necessarily think would be involved. We're speaking to Mandy Wiener about her new book, Ministry of Crime and Underworld Explored. We'll be back with more conversation straight after this ad break. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. We have Mandy Wiener in the office. Her new book, as we have Mandy Wiener not in the office, we have her in the studio. But uh, we're discussing her new book, and it could be a, an official government office because the book's titled Ministry of Crime. An Underworld Explored. It's published by Macmillan and it's been released. Mandy's going to be in the media. You'll see her. You'll hear her. We've got her here on High FM today. And uh, we're discussing the nexus, the intersection between crime, criminals, the police and politicians. I'm a news junkie, not as much as you, but I'll catch EWN or hear news on High FM on the hour whenever, whenever I'm close to a radio. I look at the News 24 app continuously during our, throughout the day. I get through The Economist every week, and I check The Guardian every day. But the absolute craziness of South African police and politics, the power plays, the factions, the dirty tricks make following South African police and crime so difficult. I often switch off when I hear the names Richard Madluli or Lolly Jackson because there's so many competing narratives. Who's good? Who's bad? Who's compromised? Who's on which side? Who are the good guys? Who are the crooks? Who's manipulating behind the scenes? You report all of this. When I hear the name Richard Madluli, I hear it in your voice <laughs> because that's, that's the stories that you've covered. How can the average South African cut through the multiple layers of accusation, doublespeak, and the blatant lies to get to the real core of the story? The problem is a lot of this is very complex. You know, as you say, it really is hard to wrap your head around it. And I find that a lot of people become apathetic um, or they just, they, they'll just switch off and they won't listen to the news anymore because of it, because it's too depressing or it's too overwhelming. Um, so a lot of the, the stories that I tell in the book are stories that have been in the news already. Um, but people will hear all these disparate uh, names and narratives, as you say. And what I've tried to do is kind of weave them all together into into a kind of tapestry that you can read it and get a comprehensive view of where all the different pieces of the puzzle fit together. Um, and that's what I've tried to do in, in this book. I've told the story of the underworld over the last 10 years or so. But in parallel, I've told the story of, of crime intelligence and the criminal justice system and the NPA so that people can get that context and, and can understand it. Um, and I think that's really important because you can't look at, at crime in isolation. You have to also look at what's happened in terms of our criminal justice system and, and, and how the two have fed off each other. So you have been very successful on that for that goal of making a context and then putting the narratives, the stories into that context. For once, I understood who the people were and all the claims and counterclaims and accusations and mm. counter-accusations, all of a sudden, they, they make sense. But when you're hearing it on the, on the radio, when you're driving in your car, and it's just a tiny fraction of the overall story, and it's just today's update of yeah. something that's gone on for months, it's very, it is very, very difficult. I, mean, I, I call it SA's most complicated story you should care about because it's really important. You should care about it, but it's so complicated. Um, and it's very hard. Like You have to uh, have a, a constant uh, following of the news to be able to, to comprehend it. Um, and, and that's what I hope to achieve here, that uh, at least this will give you some context and, and some background because if you're hearing a snippet on the radio, um, you might know who Richard Mcluley is. You might know who um, 
uh, Pachlane is, the names will be familiar, but you might not really understand it all. Um, and that's what I really want people to, to do is even if you're not a news junkie, even if you don't follow regularly what's going on, you could, you could sit down and read this book and, uh, get a, a pretty good grasp of, of where we are in terms of the criminal justice system and, and fighting organized crime in the country. In terms of knowing who the good guys are and who the bad guys are, how do we, how do we penetrate through all the multiple layers of accusations? I mean, it's very hard to say definitively who's a good guy and who's a bad guy. Um, you know, I think that the problem that we have here is that a lot of the good guys are bad. Uh, you know, there's a number of, of incidents, uh, in the story where very senior police generals are accused of, of corruption. You had the person who was the head of detectives in the country who was allegedly on the payroll of criminals. Um, you know, you've got the person who was the head of the Hawks, uh, in Gauteng, the person who was the head of crime intelligence in Gauteng, all, all of these people who either were corrupt and were accused of, of being horribly corrupt and implicated in criminal conduct, or they are the victims of smear campaigns. So it's hard to see the, like the wood for the trees and, and work out what's what because there, there is such a, a prevalence of, of smear campaigns and an abuse of, uh, um, all of those functions of the state. So, you know, Richard and Bluley, for example, claims that all the allegations against him are part of a smear campaign to prevent him from coming the na- becoming the National Police Commissioner. So do you believe the evidence that apparently is there, that it was uncovered by the Hawks investigators, which show all of this malfeasance and fraud and corruption? Or do you believe him claiming that all of this is orchestrated, uh, it's all part of a, a political strategy to prevent him from becoming uh, the most senior police officer in the land? And then the fact that the NPA is not investigating these claims also adds an extra layer. The absence of action on government's behalf adds another layer to the to the ambiguity. Of well, that all, all comes down to the the political will, uh, and that's where the the politics comes into this whole idea of, of the Ministry of Crime. So you've got, for example, Glynis Breitenbach, who is at the NPA, uh, who tries to prosecute Richard Mdlouli. Um There's a very strong case against him by all accounts. There's all of this evidence, um, but the political pressure comes down, and she's pulled off the case uh, ostensibly for for dodgy reasons. Um, and as a result, Mdlouli never actually gets prosecuted uh, and and that's all because of the political cover that he has um, so it's very hard to to really know what's going on you have to look at it holistically and understand the context of of all of it it's never just so simple that's what ministry of crime does mandy weiner's book ministry of crime creates that context the structure the superstructure for multiple narratives and there's so many different people so many different la- layers of the country all interconnected the, all this layering, when you research a story for the radio or here for, the, for your book, you listen to both sides of the story. You, you, you give the underworld a platform, but someone has to be lying. Either the commissioner of police or the head of criminal intelligence or, or, or who, someone is lying, or maybe Paula Sullivan in all these allegations. How do you decide for yourself and how do you deal with any resulting um, cognitive dissonance? To be very clear, I, I don't make a finding. And I say in the book that there are many versions of the truth. So everyone's got their own version of the truth. And I don't say definitively who is telling the truth. I put it all out there and I want people to decide for themselves. Some people get frustrated by that because they say, well, you're the person who's investigated this most closely. You should know who uh, 
you know, who's lying and who's not. I, I don't think that's fair. You know, I don't think that's, that's, that's my job to do. Um, I want people to read the book and at the end of it go, this guy's definitely lying or this is what I believe the evidence is. Um, and, and I think that's part of the intrigue of, of the whole experience is people also like to, do some detective work them, themselves. And I hope that, you know, at the end of it, people will go, oh, this is what, what my take is on it. And it was the same with the, um, the Oscar Pistorius book, is I never uh, said at the end conclusively whether I thought that Oscar Pistorius was telling the truth or not. Um, I wanted people to look at the evidence and decide for themselves. The, the, a central figure at the beginning part of the book is Radovan Kreitzer. Um You spend a lot of time talking about him. I want to ask you, as soon as we come back from the next ad break, what facts do we know about his criminal, his criminal activities? What is definitely in the public space, and where does all the speculation begin? As soon as we finish with the ad break, we'll be back in conversation with Mandy Wiener. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book. We're in conversation with Mandy Wiener, EWN News personality and author of four books. Her latest book, Ministry of Crime, is released this week. She's here to discuss the Ministry of Crime with us. Just before the ad break, I mentioned Radovan Kreitcher, <coughs> who is a, a major personality in the underworld. What facts do we know about him and his criminal activities? The thing about Radovan Kreitcher is that he also built this persona around himself. So so a lot of it was, was kind of gangster PR. Um, you know, it was all about the image. Uh, he wanted people to think that he had a lot of money. Um, and as a result of that, he his name got associated with a lot of murders. Um, although he was never actually charged with them. So there is a lot of myth around the man rather than, than fact. The, the fact that we have is that he has been convicted of attempted murder and kidnapping uh, for an incident relating to, to a drug deal that went wrong. So that's the one conviction that he actually has. Um, there, there, are, there are a kind of a pile of bodies that are, are linked to him, but no conclusive evidence. Uh, so he has been linked to the Uwe Gembala murder, which was a, a German supercar tuner. He's on trial for the murder of Sam Issa, who was a Lebanese drug dealer, uh, who was uh, gunned down in Bedford View one Saturday morning. Uh, he is accused of plotting to murder Paulo Sullivan. Um, and he's been linked with a number of other murders. So, of course, the Lolly Jackson uh, murder, um, Ian Yordan, who was Lolly's lawyer, Mark Andrews. But he, there's never been evidence to actually conclusively directly link him to it, uh, although he's always been implicated. So there's a vast difference between the myth around Kreitcher and the actual truth of it. And then you talk a lot about, you write a lot about his corrupting the police within the Bedford View area. Policemen coming to his money point uh, building and getting payments or uh, these the, these allegations are in the book and even connections to politicians. So what Kreitcher was able to do very successfully was to corrupt the different levels. So you had uh, patrol police officers who would come in and get money for, for KFC for lunch. Um, you'd get police generals that would arrive that, that he would pay off with bags of cash uh, and envelopes stuffed with, with money. Um, but then you also had Hawks officers who were doing the criminal work for him. When he was 
convicted of uh, attempted murder. There were a number of Hawks officers who were convicted alongside him who were acting as his kind of gangsters who were doing the kidnapping and the intimidation for him. Uh, so it, it's at every level. He he was accused of corrupting the head of crime intelligence in, in Gauteng. Um, there, there was even allegations that he had corrupted him duly. So it's at every single layer that he was able to uh, to to corrupt and and essentially break the the police service in many ways. This is serious stuff. I, I read the book and just to hear it a second time again, it just puts you back in that uh, very very nervous and uh, anxious mind space. You were also on the scene of the Lolly, of the Lolly Jackson murder in the East on the East Rand in Kenton Park. And uh, when you describe that evening in your book, you actually heard about it quite early. You went home, then you eventually went, you, you decided to go to the scene, and it was like an empty scene. There was no one there. You, you, you said your car was the first, you, you were the only car parked there in this driveway. But later on, with different uh, perspectives of different players giving their, their stories, it seems that there were people there before besides just Lolly and the murderer. Mm. It's, it's a very, very complicated evening in terms of all the, the different activities that were happening around. It's very complicated, and it depends who you believe. So um, Lolly Jackson, of course, was shot yesterday. It was the anniversary, uh, coincidentally. It was eight years ago. Uh, on this rainy Monday night um, in May in uh, 2010, just before the World Cup, and um, I went to the house in Edley, and I got there, and there was one police car that was there, and I thought that I'd missed the whole scene. I thought that everything had been cleared already, but it turned out that I was just very, very early. And... You know, from that arriving there, the the dominant narrative that came out was one that was pushed by Paul O'Sullivan, uh, was that George Luca, who was this kind of two-bit criminal uh, Cypriot that was known in, in the area, um, had shot Lollie Jackson, had phoned Joey Mabasa, who was the head of crime intelligence, confessed and then fled the country. But over time, we started to get different versions and, and different narratives that came out. We had that godfather-esque testimony of Luca in the Palm Ridge court where in this raspy voice with an oxygen nebulizer, he told about how it was Radovan Krejci who had shot Lolly Jackson, called him a cockroach, uh, and then Luca had, had fled and taken the, the fall for him. Uh, so I've spoken uh, to the investigating officer. I spoke to Joey Mabasa. I've got Krejci's version. I've got Luca's version. All of those. Um, and then the evidence, which tells a story as well. Um, but we don't know. So that case will probably never be concluded because either the state's main witness is dead or the main accused is dead. So there, sh- there could be an inquest down the line, but we'll probably never know the truth about what happened there. So another one of the ex- many examples where you give everyone's perspective and it's left to the reader to do that frustrating, but also sometimes uh, I don't know, detective that exciting detective were to work out for themselves where they think the line of truth actually falls. You, together with Jacques Pogue, Linus Breitenbach, Johan van Lochrenberg, and many others, have documented the corruption and capture of South Africa by criminal elements. Why is this all happening? Do we breed bad leaders? Are they after self-enrichment? Is the system prone to corruption? Is the ruling party pulling itself apart while simultaneously being corrupted by criminals. I read a lot of these books and somehow I just feel that we're not getting to the 
essential truth that we're describing the surface, the symptoms, but there's something beneath the surface that no one's mm. been able to nail. I think it's all of the above. You know, I think to a large degree, the system is broken. And for that reason, I think that uh, it's problematic and it, it's so systemic, it's so deep that it's, it's hard to, to remedy. Um, and I think that the broken system allows uh, criminal enterprises to flourish. So it's a combination of things. You know, I think there's also been an intentional um, evisceration of, of law enforcement agencies for political gain, and criminals have capitalized on that. So you speak about Johan von Lochrenberg. It was, it was really Johan von Lochrenberg and the, the SARS so-called rogue unit that brought down Kreitscher. It was their investigation that all the other police agencies followed. And now you've got a situation where that entire unit is no longer in existence. So that capacity has been completely hollowed out at SARS, which means that lots of other little creatures will, will develop. Um, and by all accounts, you know, for example, I spoke to the, the head of the Hawks in Gauteng, Prince Mokoteri, who says that as it stands at the moment, there is no capacity to fight organized crime. In fact, he said the, the Israeli officials were saying to them, uh, here's our list of wanted criminals known gangsters who are in South Africa, none of these people were on the radar of South African police. So they're all hanging around Joburg or, or Cape Town or wherever they are. they wanted by the Israelis. They're they known suspects. Um, but the police here haven't got a clue about them. This is People of the Book. We conversation with Mandy Wiener looking at the breakdown of South African law enforcement and uh, crime intelligence. We'll be back with more conversations straight after this ad break. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. We are in conversation with Mandy Wiener. We're discussing her new book, P uh, Ministry of Crime. It's out, it's available now, it's published by Macmillan. And we're just looking at the evisceration of the state and of uh, the state's capacity to fight criminals. Um, it, you've mentioned, we've mentioned a number of, of people who, 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 who documenting the same, the same rot that you cover in ministry, ministry of crime. If you had the power to appoint a dream team to oversee the police, crime intelligence SARS, hmm. who would you appoint to such a dream team? So sure, it's quite a trick question, you know, because it's hard because so many people who've left, uh, have left under a cloud, but you don't know if that cloud is warranted or not. Um, so there's all of these allegations against Johann von Lockerenberg, for example, who, who was at SARS. Um, and it's quite clear that this rogue unit never existed. KPMG has withdrawn uh, its report. Um, there are now these trumped up charges against him. So do, do you get a guy like that back again who did such great work, but they, they tainted? It's the same as Glennis Breitenbach. Do you want her back at the NPA now because she um, – she is now with the DA. Uh, so although they've got the expertise and they they have the integrity, you also don't want them to come back with baggage necessarily. Um, so I believe that there should be a complete overhaul of, of all the different uh, organizations. You know, it's difficult because the, the politics go so deep. 
So there's always going to be different camps and people are always going to be seen as one way or another. But I think it needs to be entirely cleared out um, and and overhauled. And I, I like the idea of a career police officer being in charge of the police uh, and a career prosecutor being in charge of the NPA. I don't think those should be political appointees. Uh, and at the moment, that's all very, very wrong of the way that um, the NPA head and the police commissioner are appointed. You cannot have a situation where the president is appointing the head of the NPA and the police commissioner and the head of SARS because they are always going to be political appointees. They should be appointed by, for example, the Judicial Service Commission. The way that the public protector is appointed through a parliamentary process uh, and, and in that way there will be accountability because otherwise you'll end up with a situation like we had where the president isn't accused. He is determining who the person is who makes the decision who prosecutes him uh, or who investigates him. And that's just, that, that can only be wrong. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a very mature answer in the sense that I was hoping you'd say, this and this and this, these are the people. <laughs> but once again, you are... I've done this a while. <laughs> yeah, this is classic Mandy Wiener giving us the, uh, the facts and letting us, the, the reader or the audience... Um, use the facts and whatever we know at our own disposal to make disposal to make our own decisions. What policy change? You've really touched on this already. What policy changes would you recommend to prevent future corruption of the police and of crime intelligence and of SARS? I think a lot of it actually comes down to the the whole um, broken window policy, because I think it's a culture. In, in our country around corruption. Um, it's not acceptable when you're pulled over by a Metro police officer to offer him a bribe um, because all of that feeds into the, the acceptable culture of, of corruption. Um, you know, so I think it's at every single level that it happens. And that's where I think active citizenry is so important. Um, there needs to be uh, accountability. So you and me as, as citizens, we need to ensure that, that we aren't corrupt and that we don't corrupt law enforcement officials because all of that feeds feeds up and it feeds down from from the leaders. So there needs to be a, an, a, a culture of absolutely non-acceptance of, of corruption in the country. That's the only way that we'd ever be able to uh, to, to ensure that, that we're rid of it. I think beyond my dream team of people to take over government ministries, uh, the idea of people not being corrupt is also beyond reality. It's also a dream. But it, it, it's, it's the, you're right. It's the only thing that will get a, a country back to trust and to law and order if, if no one's prepared to undermine that trust in the law and the order can President Ramaphosa fix the situation? I think that, that he can but he needs the, the time to do it and he needs the people around him to do it um, you know so he's already made a number of, of changes um, the fact that there is now a permanent crime intelligence head is is very is very important. Um, he needs to make a decision about the national director of, of public prosecutions um, and have somebody very strong there because there's still a belief that that Sean Abrahams is not the right person. Um, so a lot of it comes down to those big political decisions and, and who's in charge of of these organisations. Um, the fact that Tom Moyani's out at, at SARS, we are seeing all of that gradual change happen, but there's still the the remnant of it, and I think that's going to take some time. Um, and a lot of this comes down to political will. There needs to be political will to to um, 
to affect those changes, and I think that it is coming from from him. But it all takes time, and we need to be patient. And he didn't have a big mandate within the ANC to. So that's the biggest problem that he has is that we've got to remember how close his victory was at Nazrek. Um and for that reason, he doesn't have the mandate to just come in and sweep clean entirely. He's got to be very careful. It's quite a delicate balance. Um, and he can't come in and just like a, a ball in a china shop, uh, pull everyone out and put all of his own people in because the damage will, will be too great. The, uh, the line between police and criminals and becoming one of them. It is an intrinsic danger in criminal intelligence. You touch on this repeatedly throughout the book, not only here in South Africa, but anywhere in the world. How did you see that very delicate balance sometimes being transgressed play out? That line is so blurred in this country. but I mean, it is everywhere in, in the world, but particularly here. Uh, and time and time again, you'll see, and I spoke to a number of crime intelligence officers and, and people who work in that kind of realm, um, and they'll say that the only way to get get intelligence about the criminal underworld is to infiltrate the criminal underworld. But you've just got to ensure that you don't become dirty yourself. Uh, so we see that line repeatedly blurred where we've got police officers that uh, that go into that world, get so dirty and never come back again. Um, by, by the same you know, reverse view is you've got so many criminals who are working for the police and you need to have informants. There needs to be that informant system. Um, it's the only way that it, that, that it works is you get a bad guy giving you intelligence on another bad guy um, and, and that's the way that this game is played out. Where it gets a, a bit opaque is where the crime intelligence slash fund for example gets completely abused because I can say oh you're my source I'm paying you but you're actually my um, my brother-in-law and you haven't given me intelligence i'm just giving you money and then you give me a, a cut of that um and it's not properly audited so so we need to have people of the utmost integrity who are in those positions overseeing those kind of of uh, functions but when it's a political position that's been filled for a political purpose that integrity often is the first casualty mm. Besides the big names in crime, Kreitzer, Mark Lifman, uh, Modak, you mentioned that there are other underworlds operating in South Africa, Nigerians, Greeks, you mentioned Israelis, Lebanese, but they don't make the news. There's Radov and Kreitzer, there's not you know, somebody else. That's the, the point that I make is that – so what Kreitzer did was he, he almost went on a, on a publicity drive. He wanted to be known as this criminal – Kingpin, um, and he he was very flamboyant. He made a show of of his money. So he he bought supercars. He had a mansion on the hill on Clough Road in in Bedford View. Uh, he often did publicity interviews, and he built this myth around him. And one of the characters, Jean Mayer, in the book says, "You can't be a crime boss and be high profile." The two, you can't have both. And that was his problem, is that he became so high profile that Ria Piecha, who was the police commissioner at the time, made a point of it and it became a PR exercise for her to get him behind bars because it was a successful um, prosecution and it made the cops look good. Uh, so, so that was his downfall. Whereas you have a lot of other people who are probably much bigger criminals than him or run bigger enterprises who we don't know about because they haven't got the public persona. And that's the only way that you can operate a, a criminal enterprise is by keeping a low profile. So there's a lot of things happening out there in Johannesburg, in Cape Town, and who knows where else in South Africa that 
just hasn't hit the radar, but it's happening. Oh, sure. It's all, it's all happening. You know, it might not be in the book, but there's lots of different underworlds. We, we always look at the underworld as being, um, the Bedford View type of, uh, gangsters, Eastern Europeans, that kind of thing, um, extortion rackets, bouncer networks. But there, there's, there are a ton of other underworlds. There's the, the taxi industry. Um, there is parallel moon smuggling. There's illegal tobacco is massive. In, in this country. So there's all of these other networks that, that are operating um, that that are are flourishing at the moment. Um, and it, it seems that they are, are largely unchecked because there just isn't enough capacity to deal with them. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM in conversation with Mandy Wiener. We'll have more to discuss right after this ad break. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM in conversation with Mandy Wiener. The book is Ministry of Crime and Underworld Explored. She's got a few uh, WhatsApps and SMSs coming in. The book is out. It retails for 285 rand. Um, any brick and mortar bookshop and every um, e-commerce bookshop will have it on their shelves. Uh, it is available right now. And we've also got, in a normal country, the president would be beyond reproach and therefore eligible to make the appointments. Okay? We hear you. But maybe giving too much power to the president without any oversight will even corrupt a person who's normally thought of beyond reproach. And then also someone sending in, how is Glynis Breitenbach tainted? Okay, well, Mandy didn't say that she is intrinsically tainted, but the allegations against her. So to bring someone with allegations in, you might not get the public's full trust in her. Yeah, to, to be very clear, Guinness is, is not tainted. Um, she was acquitted of criminal charges uh, against her. Uh, she was acquitted in her uh, disciplinary hearing. Um, so... so She's tainted in the sense that she left the NPA and now she's with a political party. So it would be very difficult for her to go back to the NPA because she is going to be seen as a DA person. So that's what I meant by, by tainted. She's certainly not tainted by, by any kind of allegation against her, the, the opposite, in fact. We've got a, f- a few minutes left. There's uh, one question I've of, of the many that I've written over here. At the end of his book, The President's Keepers, Jacques Poe talks about rogue elements in the intelligence services with endless funds to pursue th- their own agendas or whatever agenda was given to them. You flesh out that claim a bit more than Jacques did in your book, A Ministry of Crime, when you talk about these these rogue elements. Yeah, so, th- so there's, there's this belief that there there is almost like a, I suppose, a, a shadow a network of, of police officers who operate out of hotels, um, who are, are kind of running independent of the, the police, um, and that they are seen as under Burning and Lameza, who used to be the head of the Hawks, or under Richard and Gluley. Um I'm not sure that that's still so much the case. I think that was at a time where there was a lot more political infighting within the, the police service. Um, but that just shows how law enforcement has been abused to to such an extent um, and a lot of it is for personal gain so um, for example we recently had the arrest of Captain KGB who is the crime intelligence officer who is a criminal 
about, you know, he was a convicted criminal. He was um, found guilty of being involved in cash heists, um, armed robbery, uh, but he was working for crime intelligence. And the allegation is um, that we've heard in court that he was given 50 million rand from the slush fund to pay for votes at the ANC's Polokwane conference. So there's all of these stories bubbling around about... Um, these rogue police officers. Uh, and you can just see, for example, what happened with Jacques Poe this week. Uh, you know, he's written a piece about how, um, the, this rogue police officer in KZN tried to, to arrest him in Peter Louis Myberg. Uh, so you're always going to have these, these dodgy characters who, who pop up, who try and abuse the system for their own gain. Um, something else I want to ask you about. There's been a lot of books about criminal intelligence and a lot of books about, um, cap state capture. There's a fortune of things happening within state-owned enterprises. SAAs is also in the news this week. As Provin Gordon's trying to sweep it all out, and then there's a huge amount of uh, state capture through, like official or formal businesses under the wing of the Guptas. Mm. We're hearing a lot about the police and crime, especially from you and from uh, from uh, from Johan von Nochrenberg and from Glynis Brotenbach. Mm. Who's going to tell us the stories about formal business, the uh, the white, you know, the above the board economy? Um, I think that there there have been some books written about it. I suppose it's not as sexy, and the the media is always criticised for not uh, focusing on on white collar crime enough. Um, but I think that that's not entirely true. If you look at the Gupta leaks over the last uh, couple of months, and the work that's been done on McKinsey and Trillion and KPMG and SAP and um, all the different companies who've been implicated there, a lot of that focus has been on on corporate essay, um, and there's been a lot of excellent journalism that's that's been done there. Not only state-owned enterprises, but a lot of the the corporates. Um, and I think that the, they need to be given credit for that. And I think there's definitely a conscious effort that's being made by by the media to ensure that we look at what's being called white monopoly capital, um, that there are investigations into that as well. Um, and I think that it's becoming in- increasingly uh, sexy, I guess, because of its, its links to the Guptas and, um, and to, uh, to the state. I mean, you just look at the, the Bell Pottinger example and uh, the, the effect that the media Ahead there, you know there are lots of stories that are coming out about uh, that kind of uh, sphere. It's interesting because you say this is the the the, the white monopoly capitalists. Bell Pottinger was a British company, though they're not really South African, and a lot of the other companies that have uh, been tainted had the kiss of the corporate kiss of death through the Guptas, which isn't really white monopoly capitalists. Yeah, you look at Steinhoff um, and what's what's going on there. There's also been you know great uh, great coverage. There could probably be a lot more um, in terms of 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 what's what's gone wrong at, at Steinhoff, and and that's um, I suppose that would be an example of uh, of something yeah. to to look at this is ideas that hopefully you can take and that can germinate in your mind and we can have another book in in a, in a few in a few years time <laughs> talking about the white monopoly capitalists on the Stellenbosch mafia the, that's the local the local mafia it's, it's <laughs> this homegrown uh, Stellenbosch is a place for lots of South African secret organizations <laughs> Um, there are many compromised names in the South African police and uh, crime intelligence. Shadrach Sabia, um, Prince Mokotedi, Richard Mudluli, Jerry Mabasu. You mentioned them all, and the list goes on and on. What are their relationships? Well, we've already discussed this. Their relationships with the criminals, uh, but the protection that they have. 
that's something that is really scary for a South African taxpayer or anyone living in the country, that they've got such protection. Well, so those names that you've mentioned, they, although they, they're in the book, it doesn't mean that they are, are dirty or corrupt. So you've got a guy like Shadrach Sabir. There are allegations against him. He believes that it's a smear campaign. He's quite clearly said it's not true. And there's a very strong possibility he could be the next head of the Hawks. Uh, so it's difficult because um, it, it's almost unfortunate in a way that he's been the victim of this, this smear campaign because there's no real evidence to, to prove it. Um, but it's very easy for me to come out and say, I gave this guy money. So you've got uh, Grigorov, who's a Bulgarian, who was a Krejci lieutenant on the witness stand saying, oh, yeah, Sabir was part of our criminal network and he met with Krejci and took money. But you can't prove that. But just by the virtue of him saying it, raises questions. And and for someone like Sabir, who's the head of anti-corruption for the city of Joburg, who may well be the next head of the Hawks, it's a very difficult terrain to, to navigate because he can only come out so often and say, it's not true, I'm the victim of a of a conspiracy. Um, but it shouldn't impact his, his career. Um, you know, if you look at the magistrate in Kempton Park who's accused of taking money from, from Kreitzer to release him on bail, I went to go see him and... I felt really sorry for the guy because he's not allowed to speak out. Um, you've got the word of a known criminal against the word of a straight arrow magistrate whose career has been ruined because of this allegation against him. So it's a tough thing to kind of weigh up the, the evidence versus the, the, the allegations. That, that's yeah, that's a, a central theme around South African life. That the the smear campaigns and the fake the fake allegations are so difficult to to winnow out from the truth. One last question before before we, we, we finish a conversation with you. What are your thoughts of the future of South Africa? I'm very optimistic about the future of South Africa. So I don't want people to read the book in, in despair. It paints quite a bleak picture. And I don't want people to finish it and go, this is so depressing, I'm packing my bags, I'm out of here, the criminal justice system is broken. I want it to have the opposite effect on people. I want them to read it and go, how do we ensure that the cycle doesn't happen again? Um, because as it stands at the moment, it, it potentially could happen again. Um, you know, it, we have a situation with, with Nafiz Modak in Cape Town, um, who... Is, is in a way kind of following the same uh, route as uh, as Kreitcher did in terms of his relationships with with the police and uh, his relationship with the security industry. So I want people to to be aware and, and watch the Watchmen. Uh, that's that's what I want people to to take from this book. And I am optimistic. I think that there are incredibly good police officers and prosecutors uh, who are out there every day doing great work. So they can't all be painted with the same same brush and, and be tarnished. So people must have confidence. Just look at the conviction and sentencing yesterday of uh, Sandiswe um, Mantwe. So you had a case there where he was... Very quickly arrested, we had a trial, a conviction, and a 35-year murder sentence. And that just shows that the criminal justice system does work when, when it can. We are in conversation, we're just finishing the conversation with Mandy Wiener. I think the most powerful answer she's given the whole hour was her optimism in South Africa. I think it's a very important message that anyone who reads the book should uh, should hear as well. I think it's, uh, it's a great way to finish the, um, the interview off. And... Uh, 
Mandy, who normally reports the news, has now become the news. Thank you for giving your time. I know you've got a very hectic few weeks here, launching your book and doing a million publicity events. And while Mandy was here, her phone has been going the whole time. <laughs> you can't take the news persona out of Mandy. This is this is the life. This is the air that she breathes. Thank you so much. And I hope that the book does hit its target in South Africa to make everybody aware of the type of country we're living in and what type of things we as citizens can do, active citizenship, citizenry, so that we can turn the Ministry of Crime into the Minister of the Ministry of Wealth Generation and Security and uh, trust in the country so that we can have that country that is the potential of our people. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. We've just finished our conversation with Mandy Wiener. The book is Ministry of Crime. It's available already. It was embargoed until the 1st of May, uh, but now it is in the shops. Someone asked earlier, what is the price? It's 285 Rand. That's the recommended retail price, and it is available. It is a very powerful read, but as Mandy finished off her conversation with us, she's very optimistic about South Africa. We have the opportunity at the moment to rebuild the different structures of law enforcement, of crime intelligence, of the criminal justice system. And uh, citizens of South Africa have the responsibility in their hands to choose the leaders that they want to be making all these appointments. And possibly we could have a a flourishing ministry of you know, wealth generation and ministry of security and the ministry of trust, replacing the ministry of crime. Just looking towards the rest of this month, we've got interviews every single week. Next week at uh, 11 to 11.30, we'll have Jonathan Kaplan and uh, Joan Jal in the studio to discuss the book that they wrote together, Winging It. Then after that, from 12.30 to 11.30 to 12, we'll have Kate Moss, not the supermodel, but the British historical novelist, who will be discussing the first in her projected trilogy about Huguenots with a very strong South African connection. And the first book in that trilogy is called The Burning Chambers, and we're going to be discussing Huguenots and uh, the religious wars in France in the 1500s. Then two weeks' time, we'll be in conversation with Greg Hurwitz. He is a best-selling author of many books, but the ones that we're going to be discussing is his his three most recent books, the Orphan X trilogy. Orphan X is the first book. If you haven't bought it, go out and get a copy of Orphan X. And the second book is Nowhere Man, Nowhere Man, Nowhere Man. And the third one that came out earlier this year is Hellbent. These are like adrenaline-infused thrillers from the get-go. He'll be in the studio. Then after that, looking towards the end of the month, we're going to have Christopher Hope in. He's born and raised in South Africa. He currently lives in France. He took a road trip around South Africa looking at the current state of the country. And so we'll be having him in the studio to share his thoughts. And then rising British spa thriller writer Mick Heron will be in to discuss his latest book London Rules and then looking further into June 
I'm trying to arrange to interview the author of The Tattooist of Auschwitz. It's a best-selling book, and I think it's really sold so well in South Africa. But it will be a wonderful opportunity to have the author discussing that story with us. And then also Richard Pierce, who I interviewed last year for his book, Nicole, about the shark that swam 22,000 kilometers in one year. His new book, Cuddle me, kill me about the can the hunt canned lion hunting. He'll be in, he'll be joining us as well. So we've got a full month for May and then even into June, lots of exciting discussions around fantastic books. From me to everyone listening, it's good Shabbos and keep reading.